This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. I, I think in a large sense, what we're talking about today is truth, right? Truth within medicine, truth within biomedical science. And we've been talking about how do we as researchers and practitioners ascertain that which is true. And that can be all well and good if I do an experiment and I interpret my data and I know that this is true with a capital T, but that doesn't get very far if I can't communicate that to other people. And if I can't also convince them that what I have convinced myself is true is true. Um, you obviously have a massive platform for communicating about biomedical science, both to a lay public and to other physicians across specialties. And you are a commentor in that sphere who is frequently wrought in controversy uh, in the past few years. I, I think largely because you frequently have the courage to speak and say that which you believe to be true. And you always have citations and uh, well-written and well-phrased uh, analyses of the papers that you're talking about as you as you just broke down some of those long COVID papers. But as I'd like to shift to this discussion about communicating and convincing people about truth in medicine, the first thing I want to ask you is, how does that work for you in your job? Because you are a professor at UCSF, you have your own job and your own department and your own institution. And yet on social media and on your podcast and, and out in public, you say things that are considered very controversial and that are, you know, pilloried by many people out there in the world in our country. Does that affect you at work? Where do you find the comfort and courage to do that while you still wear a doctor hat and see patients? Just, I guess, in general, wh what is that like wearing these multiple hats being Dr. Vinay Prasad? All right, that's a fair question. I guess so many things to say. One is I'd say, they're only pilloried by people who don't know anything and are incorrect. I mean, I think that's the starting, that's the starting point. So let me just say my controversial <laughs> positions. Here, here were my controversial positions. During, in 2020, in the pandemic, I said you shouldn't close elementary schools. Oh, look how that worked out. Now, I think the majority of the academics have come around to my point of view on that issue, that elementary school closure was a huge public health fiasco. We've lost tons of life years from poor education, educational gaps that we've never seen before in 20 years, the worst educational setback, which is going to affect poor minority kids. And we didn't even slow the transmission of COVID-19. There've been a number of very elegant studies that show no reduction in transmission or only a very modest decrease in transmission, because of course, it's not a disease of children. It was a disease of the elderly. My other controversial view was you shouldn't put a cloth mask on a two-year-old baby, except for when they take it off, when they nap in the nap room in daycare. That was a policy set by the CDC and the AAP, and Europe did not do that. And that policy is obviously completely crazy. And, and now I think everyone agrees, it never made sense to mask two-year-old babies on airplanes and throw families off if the kid doesn't comply. And you know, I have a friend whose child, son has autism and he almost got thrown off an airplane because this two-year-old kid didn't wanna wear a mask. That to me is bad public health. I said it at the time. At the time, I think we forget, we were gripped by a hysteria, people were crazy. And if you were to say anything like two-year-olds shouldn't wear cloth masks, something that I think is overtly reasonable, you were labeled as, you know, the bad person. So I got some of that. Um, on vaccines, I was happy to get the first dose of the vaccine, but I'm not going to get the seventh or eighth or ninth or 10th dose or the 54th dose in the future because they're not running any credible studies. It's clearly a cash grab to have a perpetual vaccine. 
There's no credible data that somebody of my age who's healthy, who's already had COVID benefits from getting further doses. And I think that's reflected in the data that only 14% of Americans got the latest booster. So these are some of the things that I've gotten pushback for. You know, what can I say? I'm right, they're wrong. And that's that's the way it is, you know, that my job is to prove to people why I'm right. Now, um, what does it mean to be a professor? I think I'm the last person on earth or maybe who believes this, but the job of professor is if you believe something and you think the data supports what you say, it's not only your duty to... Um, uh, 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 push back on other people. It's your duty to persuade them. And maybe starting in about 2015, 2016, when I became a professor, I um, started to explore all the social media. You know, we still publish 60 peer review papers a year in my lab, but we also do YouTube and podcasting and Substack. I run Sensible Medicine, the Substack that's maybe the most popular medical Substack out there. We try to reach people through all these forums. And, um, you know, all I can say is that. This is a war of ideas, and in a war of ideas, you use every tool you have, which is all the ways to disseminate those ideas. In terms of my day job, you know, I also see patients. I'm in clinic every week. I'm on service, you know, three months a year. Um, that's how we do it in the medical fields. Um, I teach some classes. I think there is um, a little bit of a shift in the academy. You know, I started medical school um, about 15 years ago. And 15 years ago, I think universities were much more open to having debates and dialogue. Now I think they've become extremely close-minded. There's a really wonderful piece by Lisa Rosenbaum in this week's New England Journal of Medicine, which really talks about the difference between um, uh, necessary and unnecessary discomfort. You know, residency, when I think when we all did it, was pretty brutal. And there were a lot of things we had to do that were unnecessary hardships, like every neurosurgeon has suffered in residency, let's be honest about that. But now we're moving to a world where trainees don't want any discomfort. The problem is that's not tenable. You need some discomfort to be a doctor. It's not gonna be easy, it's gonna be hard. You're gonna have to work late. You're gonna go sleepless sometimes. And you're gonna hear ideas that you initially disagree with and you're gonna have to deal with. But increasingly, I think universities are capitulating to the softest amongst us and they don't want any challenges. You can't, I think every neurosurgeon listening will probably be frustrated by many of the things that you couldn't do. You can't do educational conference, post-call, <clears throat> and lots of other things we think are educational we're not allowed to do anymore um, because of sort of this bureaucracy that's trying to shield trainees from the reality of the job, in my opinion. So I think that's a problem. And they're also trying to shield students from the reality of the ideas. Um, I'll just make one more point. In the pandemic, you know, the things I talked about, school closure and masking young kids, those are two examples, but boosters, to my knowledge, there were zero debates held at Hopkins, Stanford, UCSF, um, Harvard during the pandemic on school closure. What am I to think that the most important policy decision of our day had zero debates at universities because people felt the ideas were so threatening? That to me is one of the failures of the modern university. So it's kind of a roundabout answer to your question, which is really, I believe that universities should do what they were always intended to do, be a forum to debate the most important ideas of our day. And you can't be afraid to do that. And if you are afraid to do that, you should just quit. My advice to any faculty member who studied early childhood education and they were quiet during the school closure debates of 2020 and 2021, they should resign in disgrace because the one opportunity they had in their career to make a difference, they were coward. And so that's my feeling. So I'm not a fan of cowardice, and as you can tell. So, you know, that's my view. I, I love your views, Dr. Prasad. I mean, I, I, I will tell you, I worked at CDC in college in Atlanta, 
I, my major at Stanford was microbiology and immunology, and I was very much into the concept of um, infectious disease uh, and parasitology in particular. Then I went to UCLA School of Public Health. This is in 1990, and I left uh, the MPH program two credits short of finishing, two credits. And I left because and nothing to do with me disliking UCLA in particular, and it was not popular to get an MPH back then. Now everybody's got an MPH. Um, because at the time it was AIDS and smoking. And the conclusion that all the professors had was the only way to get Americans to quit smoking is to make smokers into pariahs. And that's essentially what's happened, right? That people aren't stopping smoking because they're concerned about lung cancer as much as you know, young people go, that's disgusting, right? And they use the same playbook in the pandemic. It's very interesting, right? That you're a pariah. That's, that's the way to motivate behavior. And I was always fearful of the power of the public health. I'd argue with my father about this, that the public health authorities have so much power to the CDC, you have no idea, and they really do. But um, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying because uh, I think we both became professors right around the same time. I think I was about 2014, 15, like you, maybe 16, same, same range. And I agree with you. I think that this concept of what is, as JP put it, truth, and we are supposedly searching in medical care, in medicine, for the truth of how to better the human condition from a health perspective. So, so I want to take this back to your, your daily life, right? Because you deal with a very difficult population. You, you do hematology and oncology, right? Right. Yeah. So you see cancer patients. You also <clears throat> see people with blood orders, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, so, I mean, when obviously you do a lot of research, you have a, you have a wet lab and you, you publish and you read, and I, I've seen your social media, you, you're very engaged in trying to educate the public. When you deal with patients, do you find that human beings in this current era, your patients in San Francisco, California, are they more in tune with the real truth you think today about their condition, their healthcare, the realities of it, the treatments than they were in the past, or are they less in tune? I know they have more data points, but are they actually better educated? That's a great question. So I guess one caveat is I work in the safety net hospital. I work at the San Francisco General Hospital. I'm not working up uh, at the mothership of Parnassus. Um, and I think that is different because the patients I care for are often uh, immigrant or indigent, or they have challenges in their life. Um, they're often, uh, there's a lot of charity care we provide. And I think the patients I take care of are almost always very, very grateful, um, very down to earth, um, ask good questions. Um, and also have sort of the old fashioned values. They trust the doctor. Um, when they find you, they figure out if they trust you and then they trust you, they trust you forever. Um, some of those things that we always sought in medicine, but I've also earlier in my career, I've, you know, I've worked at other hospitals, um, and I've had experiences in the, in the sort of university setting. And I think what you might be talking about is that there is a class of patient that comes in with the printout from WebMD. And they've got 700 questions to ask, and they are getting opinions from four different medical centers. And um, to me, more information is not always better information. I mean, I think if you're not trained in how to evaluate the information and you're just reading everything on the internet, you can work yourself up into a state of anxiety. You can come to not trust any doctor and reach a position where you're paralyzed, don't make any choices, and you end up getting inferior care. Um, that to me is happening a great deal, that you're getting a lot of people who are shopping around to get the opinion that they want. Um, they're, they're reading so much, but they don't have sort of a, um, they don't have a framework for how to process what they're reading. 
Um, and, and you can even get somebody who's overeducated, um, really asking sometimes the wrong questions. Um, that can be a challenge, I think. You know, that's, uh, that's very interesting. And in fact, I want to ask almost the same question, but in a different sphere of your life, we we've talked about your public facing activities on social media and otherwise your podcast. Uh, we now just talked about your patient interactions. I wonder what it's like for you in the classroom. And since uh, you became a professor some 15 years ago, if you've noticed a shift, um, not in the trainees, perhaps, but you said you teach in the medical school. Um, and I, I wonder if that same question holds. Now, more than ever, every year, we have more data. Your medical students have access to more data. Um, but what do you find their understanding is like compared to when you started? And in particular, I wonder if, you know, your position as a, as a public figure and a communicator, does that come into the classroom? Do you get pushback from students depending on what ideas you may be challenging, uh, challenging them on? Um, and, and have you found that they are more or less open to debating things than perhaps when you started your career? That's a good question. I guess I'd say... Well, and keep in mind, I've been in attending since 2015, so only seven, eight years. Um, uh, I think I might have won a teaching award in in seven out of the eight years, or something like that. Because I mm. guess, you know, so for most of my career, you know, usually the students like my lectures and stuff. In part because I'm an, I mean, you can watch the YouTube videos and stuff. I'm an animate speaker, and honestly, we all know medical school. The lectures you're getting, they're so boring and dry. And so if somebody gets up there and they actually is talking with you know, inflection in their voice, you know, you're already at the 99th percentile of speakers. I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not a high bar. It's not a high bar. Now the things I teach, the things I teach are, I mean, I teach a lot of first year epidemiology stuff and here it's basically sensitivity, specificity, positive, negative likelihood ratio, you know, prevalence, incidence, um, period prevalence, you know, some of the very basic things. Occasionally I bring in a good example from cardiology or oncology, uh, but we're not getting into debates on boosters and and things like that. Um, you know, they're they're so they're like light years away from from those kinds of things. Um, I teach a class in the master's program on how to publish and present research, which is about techniques to make your ideas expressed more clearly. I think again, um, you know, uh, n not much pushback there. Um, the one thing that is different, though, it's not about the classes I teach. It's about I think the nature of Department of Medicine. When I was a student at University of Chicago. You know, I remember that there were debates on, um, you know, all of the seminal um, medical issues of the day. Should we stent stable angina after the courage trial? You know, some of these big, big paper came out and you get two faculty members to, uh, to talk about it and it could become quite heated. Uh, that I don't see much of anymore. I see almost none of that anymore. That's really gone away. Those sort of ad hoc seminars and conferences where you talk about really how do you interpret literature very broadly. Um, yeah, so I, I do think the culture has shifted, and the culture is a culture that's not tolerant of debating. Um, the students, you know, the students I think have always been brilliant, and there are there always will be brilliant students because medicine is such a sought after field. Um, but I do think that taking away grades and making it all pass fail, and people should read the paper by Lisa Rosenbaum about sort of how people increasingly view some of the workplace tasks. I think I think the culture has shifted a fair bit, and. Um, uh, you know, it's in, in a way that I think many of us feel like people are just kind of watching the clock and looking to check out and, um, and, and have forgotten some of the core principles of this field, like that ultimately the patient will be your patient and it doesn't matter day or night. If they call you, you know, you got to answer and you got to come in and you got to do stuff, you know, that's, that's the nature of the job. And 
I do, I do worry we're not teaching that, that clearly. Can, can I ask you, I mean, I don't know what your experience has been. Obviously, San Francisco is a very uh, international city, so you meet folks from especially across the Pacific. Do you think that um, as, as, as bad as it's getting here in the U.S. in terms of these factors, do you think it's, it's still better in the U.S. or do you think we will be outpaced by other countries that maybe, maybe India, countries that maybe have a more open or more traditional sense of scholarship? Is, is it possible that we're just still better, but the whole world's getting worse? I mean, what do you think is really happening globally? That's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, I guess I'm probably not the best person to comment on that because I haven't spent too much time looking at the schools in India or China and seeing what they see, seeing what they do and what they talk about. Uh, I do spend a lot of time in Western Europe. And I think Western Europe, of course, um, you know, they at least when we were talking a little about pandemic policy, I think they did more, more things correct in pandemic policy. And they're much more open about debating in Western Europe than this country. Um, but who's going to win the medical battles? Uh, that's a tougher question. I'm not sure about that. You know, I, the reason why I ask you, I, I was actually, uh, I can make it known now, I was involved in this very high level um, search as a candidate for dean of a medical school uh, for, for myself. It was weird how it happened, but I was in the final round um, and I actually pulled myself out. And it was a, a deanship of a very, very well-known medical school and a top, you know, 60 in the world. And so I got to know all the people there, the provost, you know, the deans of other schools, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it struck me that the system of learning, this was in East Asia, was so different. Um, and I didn't know that it was better. I didn't think it was necessarily better, but there was a very different approach to all these things we've been discussing today. And you, one wonders what's going to happen, right? Like, I'm, I'm hopeful that America will remain the forerunner in medical science and healthcare, of course, for, for, for our lifetimes anyways. So I'm just curious. I mean, JP, do you have an opinion? You've been, you've been around the world as well. I mean, you have a strong opinion about that? Oh, I, I don't know that I've I've been around myself through through the vehicle of this podcast. I've had a chance to talk with people in a, a few countries that I haven't visited. And from the people I've spoken with on this show and from the people I've met who come to the United States for their training, I think we all work with a number of IMGs, FMGs, call them what you will. I think now at least they still view the United States as the pinnacle and the place to come. And it, it is interesting, though, that as you point out, that maybe you could say old school work ethic and that old school sense of scholarship still exists in uh, some countries around the world, even if it's maybe fading in some of the institutions in, in the States. But it seems, at least for the people I've spoken to, that the desired outcome of that scholarship and that discipline and, and that conscientiousness and studies is a ticket to come here to the, to the States to finish training and to finish education. So um, at, at least in the eyes of, of those hopefuls, we, we still are at the top of the heap, it seems. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, this has been a really wonderful conversation. I mean, you've opened up my eyes a lot. Uh, you obviously are a very serious scholar and you've given uh, this a lot of not only thought, but a lot of energy and, and, and Put your neck out there a little bit. I, I, I agree with you on most things. I think that um, we need to hear more refreshing voices like yours uh, out there. And, and this is this this podcast is a vehicle, hopefully reaching a lot of young folks who are thinking about becoming a neurosurgeon uh, and, and, and 
one thing about neurosurgery, and I'm sure in hematology, oncology too, is you can't avoid the truth. You can hide from it, but you can't avoid it. Eventually it catches up with you. Yeah. Well, Dr. Prasad, thank you so much for joining us. Please take a moment to, you have so many things to plug. I, I follow you on X. I love your posting there. I've listened to some of your podcasts and your YouTube shorts, but please take a moment for any of our listeners that aren't already engaged with your uh, public facing uh, social media presence and let them know where they can find you, your thoughts, your writing, et cetera. I guess I'd just plug two things. I guess you can follow me on YouTube at Vinay Prasad MDMPH, and there are lots of like lecture videos you can watch. And you can also follow, I would recommend the Substack Sensible Medicine. It's sensible, sensiblemed.com. And it is, um, yeah, um, sensible med, sensible-med.com. And uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, basically a sort of a daily journal for doctors. We got a bunch of writers who are physicians and we write about all sorts of policy issues. Phenomenal. We'll point our listeners to all of those. We'll link in the show notes. Um, we'll link to this on X and hopefully that'll raise my Kardashian index for my career. And uh, <laughs> this has been a lot of fun getting to talk with you after having followed you online for so long. Uh, real honor to have you on the show. We'll, we'll have to have you back someday. Uh, but for now, thank you so much, Dr. Vinay Prasad, for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thanks for having me. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.